Hi, I'm Angie Brown and you are listening to the Being Luminary podcast. The podcast where I sit down with everyday but by no means ordinary thought leaders to talk about being luminary in life and in work. Hello friends, in today's episode I have the absolute pleasure of inviting Claire Stewart Hall to the podcast. Claire came and talked to us in season one, but this time we are turning the tables and she is interviewing me in the first of a series. We're thinking maybe two episodes where you get to find out a bit more about why I am motivated and inspired to do this work. So without further ado, let's get to my interview with Claire Stewart Hall. Enjoy. Today's episode, I am going to be talking to my friend Claire Stewart Hall and I'm going to invite her to introduce herself. But she's been on the podcast before. She's a friend of the podcast. And today we are switching roles. So she's going to be asking me some questions. And um, I don't know what the questions are yet. So an opportunity to hear maybe how I respond to some of the things that come up in this space around diversity, equity, inclusion. So I'm going to ask Claire to introduce herself and then we will get started. Hello. Thank you, Angie. Um, I'm Claire Stewart-Hall. I run an organisation called Equitable Coaching and I'm a researcher, a coach, a former educationalist. And I work in the diversity, equity and inclusion space around uh specifically around research um to do with whiteness and the construction of race in majoritized organizations thanks claire so you have some questions for me i have and uh, there are many questions that i could ask you because we've known each other for a very long time we have. Um, so i'm going to start with some old familiars to you mm. um so the first question is can you tell me your origin story Oh, how far back do you want me to go? Are we talking 1975? 1975. <laughs> was an immigrant and he was from Montserrat and they met at teacher training college. So they were both training to be PE teachers. I'm told I was uh, involved at, by, the, by the point at which my mum qualified to be a teacher. And um, I grew up with them in North London after a year and a half, my sister was born and then my mum and dad split up. And so I didn't see much of my dad when I was growing up, lived with my mum and uh, um, and my sister. And then my stepdad, who is a white British man, became involved in our lives when I was about two and a half. And uh, he is still involved, very much involved in in our lives. I would call him my my dad. So I had a North London upbringing with a mum who was a teacher with a fairly absent father, biological father, and a very present uh, stepfather, and went to school in North London until the age of 10, when 
my mum and stepdad decided that they wanted to get us out of the city. So we ended up on the outskirts of Dartmoor in Devon, arriving at a tiny primary school, rural primary school on the edge of an area called the Teen Valley. And I spent from the Christmas of that final year of primary school until July, just being hugely aware of what it was like suddenly to be somebody that was racialized as brown. Because until that point, I'd been in central London and not really aware of the role that the colour of my skin would have in interactions with people. And suddenly we were exposed to a completely different reality. So it's a sort of culture shock, I guess, of moving from North London to very rural, to a very rural area, but also the culture shock of suddenly recognising one's own race. And some quite overt things happened in that period of time. I remember what's coming to me now is um, being in the village shop and my mum asking if something could be reserved, something like a loaf of bread could be put back for her to collect later. And the person who owned the shop saying that it wasn't going to be possible to reserve them and that being a very different treatment to the treatment that we knew other people <laughs> underwent in that shop um so i i moved on from that school i was there for a few months moved on from that school went to secondary school and became one of the very few black children in that uh, secondary school. I think I was the only one when I first got there. And then when my sister arrived, she was the second um, and had some experiences, which I talk about quite a lot in my training of what it's uh, what it's like to be racialized as brown in a very large school with lots of children who are not racialized as, as brown. Um, and I think developed... I say I, I, I often think I developed a way of being that is quite chameleon-like, but actually on reflection, I think I probably already was that. I probably was already destined to be that person. But notice when I look back on how helpful that chameleon-like attitude was as I made my way through school, because I was very e very able to put people at ease, very able to make people feel as though my race was not going to cause them any problem and very able to make people feel really good about including me without ever talking about inclusion. So I recognize people feeling a sense of their own brilliance <laughs> in being inclusive <laughs> when I look back. Um, but I, I think from the time that I moved, when my family moved, when I was 10 until the age of 17, I desperately held the thought, I need to get the heck out of Devon. I need to get out of here. I need to go back to London. And there was a real impetus for much of my childhood around, I'm only here temporarily. Once mm. I'm through this bit, we'll be able to, you know, and out the other side, we'll be able to get back to London. And it was on the way to London 
with a boyfriend that I had at the time that I found myself in Bristol. And actually, it was Bristol that I then stayed for the next 25 or 30 years or something. (laughs) Never quite making it to London again. But having achieved the sort of the high watermark of getting out of Devon. Mm. Um, And then Bristol is where I ended up eventually training to become a teacher, meeting you, and then moving into this this work that I do now. So yeah, that would be my origin story. Mm, wow, I can just hear the uh, management, the levels of management required when changes, changes in geography, changes in family, and mm. how quick I guess that I had to, I wrote down the word displaced. You know that mm-hmm. actually, you know, you're in a place, and obviously I've met your family. And know mm. how you know rooted and earthed and powerful you are as a family. Mm. So it's have a sense of the external world impacting on you, the effects of racism and management of others, I guess. Mm. And a lot of the time I read, you know, I see the different things that you do and I see the different work that you that you undertake. And, and a lot of the time you say you're called to this work. And I I wondered what you meant by that. And can you describe what that means to you? And I guess, how does the work continue to call you? Yeah, I think I spent, and it's sort of combined with my origin story, really. I spent a long time, even before we moved from London. um, What's interesting is actually before we moved from London, I remember my mum buying buying books um, that had brown characters in them. There's a lovely book called Little Man, Little Man, which is James Baldwin's only child, uh, children's book. We had that at a really young age, and um, we, you know, we grew up in North, in North London, next to near one of the most, you know, world famous kind of Stroud Green Road um, Caribbean bookshop, Black River uh, bookshop, Black River books, and so we were surrounded by opportunities for people to buy us books and to be immersed in in an understanding of what it was to be a black person or child as a child I really remember that and I remember thinking I don't always want to read these books (laughs) so my mum would come home with a stack of books and before we'd left London I had Roll of Thunder Hear My Cry I remember that I remember that last stack of books really really clearly and she used to now I think, I don't know what conversation she was having and with who, but she would come home with this sort of, I've bought, it's like, I've bought the books. And it would be the sort of <laughs> unveiling of books that we must read. Um, and, I, and I think as absent as my father was, his relationship with being a black man was was quite hard. And he was he, he was involved in TV and he, he'd made a few documentaries about race in sport and he also worked um at a time when itv had quite a lot of programming for people who held protected characteristics so i used to watch him on a program i think it was called link that was about people who held protected characteristics and one of the things i was used to think was there was my dad he would be talking and the whole program was signed and so i have this sort of memory as a before we moved from London of the importance of of blackness of of culture 
we would spend time at my grandmother's and that was the home of West Indian food. We would go to to, to Shepherd's Bush and that was where the community that my mum had grown up in lived. And suddenly that disappeared when we got to Devon. So all of that, all of that um, location of culture completely shifted. And I felt kind of relieved about not having to kind of go on and on and on about being black. There was something about those books that depressed me. And I think it was probably the content of them because we hadn't moved much beyond the depiction of black characters being fairly depressing, Mm -hmm. lives being fairly depressing. And even in James Baldwin's lovely book, there were some like high levels of trauma I was involved in reading those books. They were never light. There was never anything just kind of let's escape into literature. And so it felt like it carried a lot. Mm. And it just sometimes felt like I don't really want to carry all of this stuff. When we moved to to Devon, I I was able to be a chameleon, but also reject some of that needing to read all of the stuff. When it came up at school, I think we read To Kill a Mockingbird, and I felt like, oh, this is awkward. Um, A guy once came in, and he was a, 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 a vicar, and he was a black guy, and he played the guitar, and I thought, oh, this is awkward, and everyone laughed at him because he was a, a Christian man playing a guitar in assembly at secondary school. And I felt like, oh, this is really embarrassing because he's also a black man. So there's a lot of rejection of Mm. anything to do with being a black person. And when I moved to Bristol and ended up teaching in in central Bristol with you, I remember being offered the placement and thinking, well, I'll take it because it's central Bristol, but I feel really uncomfortable that the people responsible for the trainee programme felt I would be a good role model feeling like oh I don't I don't really want it I don't really want to get involved in that that's really not who I am I was constantly trying to escape that actually just to be normal in inverted commas so just to make it clear that the school that you came to the the majority of the children were from global majorities and the majority of the staff were racialized as white mm. um so that deficit model of assuming mm. that you would be good for or mm. help to mm. in some way. Mm. And so, also that I would want that. Yes. Mm. That somehow that would be good for me, that it would be a kind of great opportunity because after all, that's what teaching must be for me. If I've come into teaching, then it's probably to do that exact kind of work, to go and be a role model. Um, and, and I really rejected the notion that, that help was needed wanted that I was the right person to do that help and so there are two things that happened when I started teaching is one is that I've never been surrounded by so many brown people I mean not since I left North London as a child and there's something of that that is so calming to the central nervous system (laughs) there's something about everything that's encoded in the body of people who are racialized as brown that is unspoken, that is incredibly relaxing. 
so it's all of the silent looks and acknowledgements and it's it's the it's the it's the knowing in any situation that the next person knows exactly what just what has just happened what dynamic has just occurred between you and somebody who's in authority who's a white person what's just taken place between you and somebody that's pushed in front of you in a queue what's just happened as the police arrived to deal with an event at school there's something very relaxing about not having to process all of that on your own but have a sort of silent awareness that that's taking place but there was also something really uncomfortable about being a middle class black woman who'd been trying to not be a black person throughout this time in Devon throughout my upbringing really uh, who didn't have any black friends um, who was an English teacher really pushing uh, a canon standard english standard english in an in an area and in a school where it felt like that was incredibly important there was a real tensions for me in those early stages and and what happened was that the relaxation won out and so over a period of time the kind of chippiness with which i felt i had to hold my hold my line that's not the person i am started to um to dissolve and i found moments of great joy in the recognition from the young people that i was teaching that i was also a black woman and it actually really took lots of them to constantly reflect back that they saw me not that i saw them that was the the kind of calling because it, in a way they were constantly goading you know <laughs> They would say things like, I like your hair, miss. Where did you get your hair done? And I'd be like, oh, okay, the same place as you. Do you like it? <laughs> oh, thanks. I like it too. So there were these kind of, it was like they were saying, why don't you just admit it? Why Why don't you just, why don't you just let, let it go? Mm. And, and then, you know, and in that school in particular, there were so many opportunities to really, immerse oneself in more than just advocacy um there were so many opportunities to see how beautiful like breathtaking it could be if some of those people who had been marginalized were just given the center ground for for even a moment it was like there seemed to be this complete magic in that so i think i was sort of on board with that calling which I think came from the children at that point but it was obviously inside me and then when I when I moved into leadership there were lots of lots of opportunities then to meet women who who were also racialized as black or brown who kept saying to me oh whenever you talk about becoming a leader it's just it just makes me feel like it's really possible and it was another kind of you know maybe you could <laughs> maybe you could do this work um so yeah it was a calling from others i guess is the <laughs> it's the short version of that long answer wonderful answer uh, what continues to call you what is it now um i think i'm more taken by the breathtaking nature of what would happen if we just decentralised some of the 
some of those vo- voices, those activities that are currently dominated by a majority and I become increasingly aware of just how brilliant people are. I mean, I know that sounds really trite and it sounds really obvious, but there's something about feeling called to do something, to speak on behalf of, to speak for, to speak with even, to empower, all of the kind of language of coaching, which is helping people and kind of empowering people and giving voice to things. Something about that is still so problematic. Mm. (laughs) And, you know, we've had conversations before about the whole pass the mic thing and just feeling like I never wanted anyone to pass me the mic. The thought that I would be passing the mic to somebody else, I just find really awkward. And what I recognise in the work that I do now is that almost the the smaller amount I do, the less I do, the more I see the brilliance of people to do for themselves. And so it's like coaching is still doing. And what calls me now is to do less and less and less. You know, when your kids learn to, to, to ride a bike, and they don't realize they're cycling they think you're still holding on to the bike mm. and then and then they turn around and it's like oh i'm cycling mm. i kind of feel like that like often we're with people or we're, we're in groups or people are exploring things and they think we're still holding on to the back of the bike and we stepped away ages ago we've just been watching them going mm. look at you cycle and that's what calls me now is to almost pretend that I was holding on to the bike Mm. and just to watch people and then to watch that moment when they turn around and see that they've been just doing it for ages I just find it I just find it really moving Mm. um and it feels like it goes beyond me empowering people to do things Mm. uh, and talks more to being a witness to to people to people unfolding exploring yeah <laughs> and i guess the, the the next question is um is twofold and i i guess there are some things that people don't know about how you work and obviously having known you for you know the better part of 25 years you know you have a tremendous work output and you always have <laughs> Even as a BBC student, um, you craft work. And I think that when I think about your calling, you know, many people kind of step into the arena and they think they might, you know, make a PowerPoint or they might go and visit someone or be inspired by something. But actually lots of this, you know, when you tell your origin story and you talk about your calling to this work, you realise how interconnected they are with your being and Mm. Anybody who knows you and has worked with you will realise the depth of work when people engage with your programmes or your practice. The depth of work is um, really significant and life-changing. And it certainly has been for me when I've worked with you. But I guess I'm interested in, you know, the, the kind of untold hours. When, when you're crafting work, you, you craft everything, pretty much everything from scratch. 
you craft it for audience, you work in a really time heavy way to sculpt it for people who are who are going to be on the other end and you really think about that. Have you always done that? Have you always done that since you were a child? And where do you notice that about yourself? Um, yeah, I, I, I have always done that. Um, I've always worked in a very time heavy way. Mm. As a child, I, I did. Um, and as a child, it, it, it had a slightly different, maybe it had the same motivation and impulse, but I didn't really, I didn't know what it was. So I would ask my teachers, what, but why, why, but why, but why, but why, but why, but why? Because I always had the sense that I needed to get right back to the beginning of things in order to understand what I was supposed to create. Mm. So if we, if we were, if we had maths, it, it came up in maths more than anything. I kind of couldn't just do the process that they were wanting me to do. I needed to know why and how it worked and, and then I, m- I might be able to understand it with projects at school would start as a small enterprise. And then I would be, <laughs> I think I did a, a project once on the financial crash on black, black Wednesday, was it black Friday or black Monday? Whenever, you know, the eighties financial crash. I had to do a project and then I, and then it ended up being, this kind of massive research project into the history of banks in the, like I had to go all the way back <laughs> in order to do the project. And at university, it was the same. It was like I would, I would collect, have a very strong image of myself at the university. I was at, I was at UE. I was in the library with a pile of books and the pile of books that I was reading would get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the notes I was taking would get more and more and more. And I used to feel very frustrated in this moment that I couldn't just sit down and write something. And then, so I think there was often an emphasis on synthesis and gathering and trying to trying to find something new in the synthesis that was that was always there. But what what changed when I probably when I became a coach. Um, so I would say around 2014 or something is that I began to rely much more on, if you like, the books that I was reading became less important. And I realized that I kind of had a catalog of stuff in my head anyway but also that I was picking up impressions all the time just from the universe. So there's a side of me that that really does believe that I get information, that I channel things, that I find things, that there's always a trail of breadcrumbs, that everything leads in a direction and that I'm following a trail of breadcrumbs. So the synthesis has become looks, has become much more flexible, much more open. And in fact, now I rely on it and I look for it. So now I, I can think... I'm I'm doing a workbook for 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 a particular project for some of my clients, and something is going to happen today that is going to be a necessary part of this. So I'm much more trusting of the synthesis uh, process, and because I rely so heavily on what comes to me, I see my output 
as less about my intelligence or even my intellectual property and more about how successfully I'm able to gather everything, all the impressions that are coming to support the people who are going to get this this product, this you know, this workbook. Um, so I'm so I'm constantly trying to connect the people I'm working with with some wisdom that I think is outside of me, beyond me, that I feel like I'm often a conduit for. And it is definitely sprinkled in then with my own wisdom, with some things that I'm reading, with a podcast, that, with a conversation I've had with my child. There's all sorts of things going on as well. But but I but I feel much more comfortable with the idea that it's completely credible to channel wisdom from one place and direct it into some other place for the benefit of people. Mm. And I think working with you, because I've undertaken a number of your programs and at the moment I'm on the Sovereign Woman program uh, with a wonderful group of women. Um, and so I've experienced lots of your lots of your work and I engage in your projects not just as your friend but just as somebody who's just has tremendous influence I think in my life and in the lives of lots of people and I I I think you can really feel the work when you when you're on the other end you can feel how much energy and effort and precision you know I just want to log that when you were teaching uh Merchant of Venice or, <laughs> or Romeo and Juliet, you had a similar attention to detail. I used to go into your classrooms and think, how on earth do they know that? Um, because you just layer, 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 layer the work. Mm. Um, mm. And I, I think about, I think what's interesting about, you know, there are many fascinating things about your approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion work, which I notice is is sustained you know there's a lot of work you turn down and you say actually no I can't do two hours dropping the mm. ocean training and I, and I guess the rather than focusing on one protected characteristic I, I noticed that you have developed a uh, real comfort in intersectionality mm. I wondered what your relationship was to intersectionality and how do you find it helpful in approaching equity work mm. yeah um that's a great question. Actually, talking about my dad today has made me think that there's a there's a an, an early start there, um, and, and thinking about the way that he used to work and the projects he was involved in. Um, I think back to my origin story, really, as well as the the desire to not be not to, as long as spending a lot of my childhood not wanting to be um, just understood as a black woman. Um, I would say my mum was also very influential in not wanting me to just be understood as a black woman. So not just a black woman, as in your blackness is not the only thing about you. Mm. And she really pushes that agenda hard. <laughs> so from, from Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry to also, but that's not the thing that defines you all in one moment. Um, and there's something quite interesting about about the reasons why. So I think how having a white partner and me growing up with a white 
stepdad also means that that conversations around race were were different in our household because it felt like it was very disloyal to have conversations about race and race being located with white people or racism being located with white people that I often felt like that's too that's too much it's too difficult to go there or unfair so i think i developed a way of talking about equity or 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 an ease with talking about equity as a consequence of that um and i think i've loved inhabiting the role of black and woman so much and i've loved the the ancestry of that I've loved the, the like the lineage of that mm. is just breathtaking so I feel really I feel really um powerful when I look at the lineage of black and female and often poor mm. um and and when I when I've uh, like my relationship with with parenting as well has not been done. I haven't parented as part of a couple. And so that's been a really important part of my identity. And knowing that, that there is also a lineage of that has been really important as well. Um, so, so I feel like as much as there are challenges of the intersection of those identities, and as much as I have a kind of theoretical and also lived experience of the precise um, discrimination that occurs across all of those lines and in relation to particular um, identities like white men who are who are um, in positions of authority, the joy of intersectionality for me has been the joy of the lineage and the power in it. I mean, just incredible, immense riches that come from it. So it feels like a really, um, it, it, it has always felt like a really liberatory way of, of viewing identity to me and not, not necessarily a reason to, to pause and kind of be overly concerned about the, the double or triple oppression and and exploring that then with people who hold multiple and intersecting identities becomes a liberatory way of doing the work which if you've been trying to escape your identity for most of your life because everybody feels sorry for you or people feel like oh yeah or you have to use the word protected mm. and <laughs> characteristic about yourself tapping into something that is uplifting and joyful and liberatory and powerful just feels like a natural the natural approach mm. which feels weirdly quite edgy in a landscape <laughs> which is pretty determined to make people feel pretty bad about their identities to make them feel the oppression mm. more than the liberation mm. Um. Yeah. And and I see you. I guess in your 
diversity, equity and inclusion uh, programs and your work, you know, sometimes the last thing you talk about is race. Yeah. <laughs> I see you researching homophobia. <laughs> I see you researching class and poverty and um, embodiment and the different versions that people have about it. And I guess the tension between, you know, essentialism, like you're just yeah. a lesbian, uh, versus, you know, you're just like everyone else, you know, yeah. that's colour blindness, protected yeah. <laughs> yeah. characteristic evasion, like we yeah. don't want to talk about it. Yeah. I, you inha- I notice you work, your work harder than most, I would say, that I witnessed. And I say this as a lesbian, that you, I feel like there's a an attunement into my identity that you, uh, it isn't the first thing that pops out. <laughs> like, I know mm-hmm. this about you, but I notice how much you research, you know, in terms of the, you know, the early GCSE mm. school teenage Angie. Mm. That a lot of that work output just buoys up your mm. knowledge. You know, you hold a lot of knowledge and release yourself from quite a lot of assumption, I think. So I think working in your programs, I think, is, um, you know, I know people who've done them, but I, I guess I noticed that in, because I think it's it's really interesting because you have to move away from the protected characteristics in order to really yeah, see the joy, as yeah. you just described, in a positive way. And I, and I think there are, there are a couple of things happening, which brings it back to this, so, so much of this work being channeled if you like or being about connection to something bigger than myself ourselves the research comes often because of which I do a lot but Mm. but or or I don't know if I I absorb a lot but the interest in trying to find out more the curiosity comes as a consequence of the feeling of humans so I feel the oppression of people in many circumstances. I mean, and I don't know if you can be taught to do this, but I noticed my son did it from a very early age. I think there are lots of us who come into the world and because we hold a protected characteristic, we can we can feel we can feel inequity so swiftly. I mean, I feel it on every edge of my being. So if if you I don't know if you remember ever um I had a period of time when I was signing on and I used to go into the job center. And if you ever want to feel inequity in Britain, then you need to go, you know, you go into a place like a job center. Um, because their location is often well, like I see things like, oh, it's here, and there's a betting shop, and there's a cash converters and there's a place where you can cash checks early uh, or they'll take your benefit check and they'll charge you 34% and you know give you some money back I see those things and they, they I am bombarded by those kinds of impressions all the time I can't escape them I see the number of people who are racialized as black or brown I see the number of uh, people who are struggling to fill in the forms because they don't have a level of literacy that allows them to I see the relationship that they have with the power dynamics that take place in those in those in those um, institutions and they affect me on a really visceral level and they always have done so I feel like I go around the world being constantly bombarded and affected by 
how inequity impacts upon people. And I'm always genuinely, absolutely shocked and aghast that the majority of people don't see it. I don't understand it because it is so blindingly obvious to me. So then to think, ah, and then it's that, and it's partly that, and it's partly that that's happening here. And do the research, like the research is the secondary bit, in a way, to the just human being on the planet thinking, this is not okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, perfect sense. And I guess that also speaks to your, you know, you have always, there's many people who do diversity, equity and inclusion work, and then you find that their processes aren't equitable. So the, <laughs> the models that they use, and I spoke a little bit about it earlier, but the the process is so important to you, mm, I think, yeah. is what I noticed. And so the care and attention to kind of maintaining connection and having equitable processes. You know, you you always say, no, I want to pay you. I say, it's okay, I'll do it for nothing. And you say, no, no, I, I will pay you. I want to pay you. <laughs> like yeah. what your work, you know, what what you're worth, what how much money do you want for it? And I, I just think that's um, well, I see it as as luminary, <laughs> is an, an evolution, I guess. But I want to uh, talk to you about writing. Mm. Uh, because you write books. <laughs> I do. <laughs> you do. And you write, you encourage others to write. Mm. And um, I just wanted to ask about your uh, first book and the calling to write your second book. Mm. Um, so those questions, I want to squeeze those in before we finish. Mm. But I, I also wanted to talk about your lockdown project. This is how we look when we lead. Is yeah, it, yeah, it was. It was yeah, um, and I, I thought it was a, a tour de force. I just, I'd really <laughs> like to, and I talk about it often, and I think about it often. Uh, could so could you describe what you did and why you did it for the audience uh, mm. during? I think it was June of the first lockdown, wasn't it? Yeah, was it June or May. Yeah, I think it, I think it was even May. It was yeah. pretty soon after the murder of George Floyd, mm. um, and. It felt it felt to me like the murder of George, the murder of George Floyd um, happened, I think, just at the beginning of lockdown. Also, so there was a very potent moment of people being in their houses and looking at the world and going, "Oh my, like, what's what's happening?" Mm. Um, so, could you describe the project? And, and yeah, what so it was a community project, which was an idea that I got from somebody else. Um, a community project is where you have a group of people who who come together on a particular topic and then and then and then collectively create a body of work that in its individual pieces are in you know pieces of art and then collectively become become a piece of art um and this particular one was a writing project so there were uh, 25 women who uh, volunteered to be part of the project and write something on the topic of of uh, identity and um, self-identity and leadership in education and the I gathered the pieces and then we published one piece every day and it went out to everybody in the community and everybody in the community got to read and comment on the piece that had been shared and there's something of artwork in the reading and sharing of the of the pieces as well so the whole thing the pieces the way that they look, because I have a very, you know, me interested in the aesthetic appeal of things as well. 
the 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 kind of absolute consistency in terms of the when they go out and who they go out to and how they appear in your inbox and the discipline of people being very um very focused on 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 replying and commenting on the piece within a container that was on mighty networks made it feel very safe i think and made it feel very I mean, it was just incredible. I just thought the pieces of writing were unbelievable. And Can you give us a sense of what people wrote about. So it was actually inspired by a uh, conversation I had with a woman who works in a school in Bristol. And we'd been we'd been having a conversation about hair. We'd been having a conversation about afros. And she had said she had an afro uh, and she just didn't ever want to wear her hair out because of the institution, the institutional response to hair. And so th- this kind of was where I got the, this is where, this is how we look when we lead idea from. Um, and people wrote about um, skin colour and people wrote about teeth, people wrote about height, people wrote about body weight, they wrote about their thighs, they wrote about their arms, they wrote about, um, they wrote about hair, they wrote about <laughs> they, they, their beards they wrote about facial hair they wrote about i mean all everything (laughs) all Mm. kinds of everything it it turns out that this this notion that we have that we're the only one (laughs) it's just so massively flawed when you even take a sample size of 25 Mm. like everyone is going yeah yeah i feel that yes exactly that I've got loads of facial hair and neck hair and I've always shaved my legs, but cut my hair, but grown my hair, but I'm really tall. I'm really short. I'm, I'm a giant. I can't fit into a chair. Does anyone else have sweat running down their back when they, it was like this sea of, of questions that women have about their identity that were completely shared and shared through the way that the writing kind of unfolded, but also through the way that people commented there's something so delightful about those community projects because they democratize a space. So they're people speaking their own their own words, not um, authored by somebody else. So my role was to kind of convene and facilitate the space and to be responsible for the container and not the not the voice of people. Um, and I think there's just something about again liberatory <laughs> about the intersectional identities that emerge in that space because you could argue that everyone held a protected characteristic and yet would you ever read that as a piece of work that was about the way that you know society has oppressed women in leadership roles you you could that could be one reading of it but for me it was a really kind of exciting way of reading with female identity women's identity so that was yeah that was that project and uh um I kind of continue to think, how do we create more of those spaces? But <laughs> that has to be a back burner right now. Mm. So tell me about your what prompted your first book, Lighting the Way. And I guess what's the calling to write your second book? Mm. So Lighting the Way came out of um, feeling like there were no, there were few leadership books uh, for school, uh, school leadership books that, were well the average person who wasn't that good (laughs) so I kind of wrote it for myself because I I felt really strongly that that school leadership books were quite heroic and um they didn't often speak to me um 
as a black woman head teacher who probably got quite a few things wrong, did a few things quite well. But the, all of the things that I felt like I was doing quite well were in the area of, of relations, relationships with people, relationships with staff, relationships with parents, relationships with children. And so I just wanted to foreground that voice, really, because there was so much at the time, so many leadership books. I think it's less the case. It feels like it's less the case right now because there's a lot of books on well-being and there are a lot of books on other ways of viewing leadership within the school system. But I very much felt I was writing against a narrative of school leadership that was uh, kind of, yeah, heroic and evidence-informed. and uh, Male. Yeah, male. And I've had 30 years of successful leadership in schools and now I'm writing my book. It felt like, well, I've had a few years, but not 30. And they were marginally successful maybe for some people but certainly not for all people and here are some things that you could try and some ways of leading that you could try that would be again more of an opportunity to democratize the space for others um and and also that you know there was a season of coaching quite a few women who couldn't see themselves in headship because of the models that they had around them for what headship needed to be like and so I wanted to just sound sound an alternative voice, really, um, at that time. Um, and, and it was a kind of reflective piece because I was coming out of school leadership by that point. By the time it was published, I was out of school leadership completely. So there was a part of it that was also a way of looking back on the things I had done and possibly being able to be a bit more open about things I would have done more of or done differently and certainly would 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 love to support other leaders to have the confidence to do themselves um and, and that and was I a think, similar time that you did the program yeah BBC two so you were yeah. involved in uh school yeah <laughs> I <laughs> school. was school. Uh, school where a, a, a tv crew came and um filmed across your across your trust so I guess they're quite good documents of parting gifts yeah snapshots yeah yeah they were really good documents and 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 I did a TED talk at the same time so I feel like I have a book and a TED talk and a TV program that very clearly spoke to that chapter of my life and of school leadership for me at that point um and the calling to write my next book, which is which is about diversity, equity, inclusion, and is for head head teachers or leaders, um, is actually much like the children asking me, is speaking directly to the people, the kinds of people I work with now, who are saying, "How do we do this um, well?" And I think I also want to add to the narratives that exist around how we could do this work. Mm. Um, and so I think we can do this work and not see it as being diversity, equity, inclusion work, mm. but see it as being personal self-development work, because actually that's what I think it is. I think the human work of looking in to you and how you carry an inability to be equitable, how you carry an inability to include, and often how you carry a kind of uh, a role or you enact a role that is quite exclusionary is mm -hmm. the first bit of doing the work. 
that's the bit where we take responsibility for it. So this is not like a series of things that you can go and just go, oh, we've got this book from Angie Brown and she wrote about it. And she said, if we do this and this and this, then we've done diversity, equity, inclusion. Actually, it's a it's an opportunity to kind of dive into where it starts, where it starts with us. Of course, with that, with that grounding, because my interest in grounding people in the the theory, the concepts, the vocabulary is there because I'm the person with mountains of books trying to synthesize things. And I want to say to people, look, here, here are some things that you can learn about these protected characteristics, if you like. But ultimately, that learning is meaningless unless you can carry, can take responsibility for for, for your part of it, which is huge. And actually, having spoken about the job centre in this conversation, Claire, I'm thinking that what I really want is for people to go, oh, we read all of these things that Angie Brown said about these protected characteristics. And for them to gain through the through the reading of this book, the skills to walk into the centre of a city in Bristol and go, oh, I really am absolutely alive to everything that I can see here. I really saw that and I saw that and I witnessed that dynamic and I get what I get what's going on there. And even if they do nothing about it, to begin to do that in a job center and then to take that to go into your own school and go, oh, <laughs> oh, it happens here as well mm. is what I want, is what I want the book to somehow deliver. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Being Luminary podcast. I would love to hear your thoughts on the podcast, so please do leave us a review. Each month, I will be picking one of our reviewers to get a free laser coaching session as a thank you. And remember, if you know a luminary or an everyday thought leader who would benefit from listening to this podcast or who would love to be featured on the cast, then please do share it with them. This episode was presented by me, Angie Brown. Original music is by Martin Ostwick. The series is edited by Big Tent Media and produced by Emily Crosby Media.